Well, ladies and gentlemen, here we go with another great edition of Inside EMS. I am your host, Chris Sommelier. I want to thank you for joining us for another great edition. Kelly Grayson is on the EMS World Tour, bringing EMS education and training to the next generation of EMS provider. He will be back with us next week. If he's now, we'll find somebody else to hang out with. But, uh, you know, we'll uh, hope for he'll uh, hopefully he'll be back with us next week. But I got a guest for you. He's sitting in the he's sitting in the co-host chair. Uh, but we're going to kind of talk a little bit about what's going on inside of EMS when it comes to our own personal defense. When we start to think about the things that we're seeing in our career field, I'm going to say that more and more people are now starting to be assaulted on scene. Kelly will contend and some of the other people will contend that this is just the 24-hour news cycle that we're starting to see more and more stories about it that we didn't see in the past. But Jason and I were talking before he came on and, you know, the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, he gave me a little quote that said, lost time at work is more likely to be as a result of you being assaulted, especially as an EMS provider, than it is in any other field. Well, with me today is Jason Brooks. Jason is the president and CEO of Defensive Tactics for Escaping, Mitigating, and Surviving the Violent Encounter, DT4EMS. Jason, I want to thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate you having me. You know, we've been friends a long time. You've been working with this program for a long time. And little by little, we're starting to see more and more agencies are now starting to get involved in this type of training. And I, I really want to just kind of focus on, you know, some of the things that I think help keep us safe, right? So when we think about the things that we're seeing in our career field, more and more we're reading the stories about uh, EMS providers getting assaulted and and nurses getting assaulted and police officers getting shot at and assaulted. And one of the things that I think I, I want to start off uh, this conversation with is, what do you think is the biggest misconception about personal safety in EMS? It's actually a great question. The number one biggest misconception about assaults within EMS is that assaults are just part of the job. The simple fact is, is most every state has made a, a felony to assault a healthcare worker because it's a felony. It's, it's a crime. Our job is not there to be assaulted. Our job is there to be caregivers, to care for people, give them good uh, care and transportation to a healthcare facility, not to be someone's punching bag. Um, and that's the biggest misconception. And part of the things that we're trying to change is changing that culture that assaults are not part of the job. You know, it's funny that you say that. I mean, because one of the things that I think is happening is, you know, back in the old days when we were doing this, I don't know that we felt, I don't know that I felt threatened a lot. And maybe it was because of how I carried myself. Maybe it was because of how, you know, I did my business. But more and more, it seems that that safety in the back of the ambulance is becoming less safe, right? So when we think about this from the standpoint of, you know, how are we going to keep ourselves in a position to uh, make sure we get home at night. I mean, can you give us some tips on things that we've got to kind of pay attention to that uh, will kind of give us that heighten of awareness? Because I think you hit the misconception right, where you say, it's not going to happen to me. This isn't this isn't prevalent. But what kind of tips do you have for safety in the back of the ambulance? Well, first off, the thing is, is what I want to say is that, you know, yeah, I've been a paramedic now 26, 27 years, I think it is. And I don't think our number of assaults have actually increased, but I think the severity of our assaults have increased. 
people are I, truly just beating us harder more often. Um, and it's finally just starting to come to light that these assaults actually exist because people are speaking up. It's we call it the dirty little secret of of healthcare is violence without on the job. As a paramedic or even as a nurse, if you went and talked to someone who didn't work in the profession and you talked about uh, how you know many times you were assaulted during the day, how people spit on you, cuss you out, try to punch you, grab you, slap you, etc. People just look at you like, what are you talking about? Who'd want to hurt a nurse, an EMT, a paramedic, a firefighter? Right. So that's just a big misconception there. Now, the number one thing that I think we really need to focus on is going back to some neutrality. Mm. Um, the unfortunate part about especially EMS is we are kind of the, the stepchildren out there. You know, you have law enforcement, you have fire who have, have their roles. And then we have EMS who kind of sits in the middle of roles and Sometimes we try to act like firefighters. Sometimes we try to act like police officers. Um, and a lot of times now we're starting to dress more like police officers between our uniforms with badges, uh, with uh, bullet resistant vests, et cetera, which has given us a loss of neutrality. And people are looking at us like we are extension of law enforcement because of how we dress and how we act. Mm -hmm. So the one, first thing is, is we need to go back to being the healthcare providers that we're supposed to be. Um, that's a big thing. The next thing is, is we need to go back to, instead of telling people what to do, we need to start asking them to do things. One of the biggest things that we see is, and a lot of people don't like this term, but truthfully, we do customer service. Um, I actually just heard uh, a new term for that, which would be community service, which I do like that also. But we go in there and we order people to do things a lot of times. And you want to tick some people off? Start telling them what to do. Um, so we need to go back to that neutrality of, Hey, we're here to care for you. What can we do for you? Um, I speak at a lot of conferences and when I look around conferences and I look at people's shirts and I read some of the things that they say on their shirts, like, you know, I'm, I'm here to save your ass, not kick it uh, or kiss it. Mm -hmm. That that's a lack of professional professionalism that's showing. Um, that's our start. We go to there first. After that, we need to start training people how to have tactics to avoid having to use techniques yeah. on every single call. Um, and that's a big focus that we look at is how do we recognize when a relationship has changed and they no longer want us to care for them or care for them in a different way. Mm -hmm. If you follow a lot of these tactics, you'll rarely have to use techniques to escape an assault. Well, I like, I, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I just said, I, one of the things I like to, to say to people is, it's really hard for someone to want to punch you in the face when you're nice to them. Yeah. Now, I didn't say impossible, Chris. I just said it makes it a lot harder for them to want to punch you in the face. That's right. I mean, I have to agree with you. I'm sorry to cut you off there. I, uh, you know, one of the things that I think you talk about is, you know, you mentioned professionalism. You mentioned how we wear our uniforms. We mentioned how, how we carry ourselves. One of the things that when we used to talk about, you know, when this program first came out years ago, Jason, one of the things that Kelly and I had talked about was this needs to be part of the structure of basic uh, education, uh, basic paramedic education, because, 
you know, coming out uh, after the fact of saying, now let's train you in how to take care of yourself. But before we get there, you know, you touch on professionalism, you know, you touch on the verbal judo, you touch on being able to de-escalate. I mean, how important are those skills in this process? You know, because I'm, I'm I'm sure that part of your program has to deal with some de verbal de-escalation as well, and not just having to, you know, defend yourself to the best of your ability. But I think this professionalism topic is something that we're not paying a lot of attention to, and it may be a miscomponent in how to deal with patients and, and their family members on scene. So you, you brought up a really good point before I talk about, about de-escalation is there's a lot of programs out there now, um, EMS programs that are teaching our program in the, in the class before they actually even start their clinical time to help, again, mitigate a lot of those assaults before they ever happen. Um, so that's a big up, uh, uptick change that we've seen is we have a lot of programs that are teaching it beforehand. But now we look at de-escalation a little bit different than a lot of people think. I personally believe the term de-escalation causes some confusion to providers because there's only one person you can control. That's yourself. It's the only person you can control. So when people say, Go in there and de-escalate that situation. A lot of people, a lot of providers have a misconception that I can make you calm down. Now, Chris, if you are upset, there is no way I'm going to make you calm down. You have to make that conscious choice on your own. So one of the things that we focus on is what we call escalation control. Is I can't make you less mad, but I can make it so that you want to calm down. And we use a lot of tips and tricks to that to include just the very starting of Number one is we use what we call verbal skills. The, those verbal skills is uh, we take the first three letters, the VER, we validate, we explain, we request help. So very first thing is validate. If you are upset that because of, I'll use an example, you've got a broken arm, you called EMS and because we're all busy, we have just extended response times. We finally get there and you're just upset, carrying on. You know, you guys, you guys suck. You took 20 minutes to get here, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the very first thing I can do is validate the fact that they have a legitimate complaint. That can be something as easy as, you know, sir, I get that. Having them understand that, that again, it's not that I know how you feel because that never works. It's, you know, sir, I get that. After we validate, we start explaining. But hey, now that we're here, let's go ahead and get your shirt off of you so we can get an IV started. So I can give you some pain medicine to help with that pain. So I validate, I explain what needs to be done next. Now, when I explain this, it doesn't have to be some big, long dissertation. It's a short, decisive what has to happen. So I validate, I explain. Now I'm going to request his help. I'm going to say, you know, sir, what do you think is going to be the best way to get that shirt off of you? Now, Chris, you've been a paramedic for I don't know what, 30 plus years now. Ever, um, forever. Yes. And do you know how to take shirts off, right? Yeah. The reason why we ask them is to put them back in, in control, to give them a say in their own care, to help with that escalation control, because now we're not telling them what we're going to do. We're working with them. Mm -hmm. So after we validate, we explain, we request their help. It is amazing to see how their, their anxiety level went from way up here, up high, way down here. Because, again, we didn't walk in and be like, you know what, man, we're busy. We, we've, we're, we're coming from 15-hour calls. You know, 
now that we're here, let's go ahead and get, take your shirt off. If you want, we'll cut it off of you. That just escalates the problem more. Right. The thing is, is that we need providers to realize that sometimes we're past that point of escalation control, that there's nothing you're going to do to escalate control them. And that may be just where we need to con- maintain distance from them and not be engaged so closely to them. Yeah. But that's how we look at escalation control or de-escalation from the start. Yeah, I think that that's really good. And I think that really kind of led into the next question. And I think he gave some really good tips of really kind of being the person that you would want to hear from in that situation, you know, being able to apologize, being able to say, well, sir, you know, what's the best way being able now to kind of help them feel like they have some of that control back. And really, when you talk about that as a skill, not only do you have to have that ability to use those words, but you've got to have the emotional intelligence and the self-awareness to want to use those words, which I think are a little bit different. But my my question really kind of went to where you were tailing off to, where you were saying, sometimes we just can't de-escalate. What are the tips that you have for people when things are really going to get to a point of maybe becoming physical or maybe going to the next level after you can't, um, you know, verbally de-escalate? I mean, what do we watch out for that our safety is uh, maybe in peril? So a lot of those things are, what what specifically are they saying? And just because you are called there doesn't mean that they're always going to be your patient. If they're threatening you, they are threatening bodily harm against you. At that point in time, you need to make this decision. Is this safe for me to stay here? Because it's not patient abandonment to leave a scene that's unsafe. And if it's getting to the point where they're in their face, they're screaming, yelling at you, they're threatening you. That may be the time where we walk out the door, we call PD, PD, and wait for PD to arrive, let them secure that scene, and then we proceed if that's what needs to be done with care. But there's no law out there that says that you have to sit there and be abused, be be assaulted, etc. It is if it's unsafe, we need to know that care can end. We can take that pause. Now we're not going to leave, go back into service. We will retrieve from the house, go back to our go go back to our vehicle. If it gets, in our opinion, if it gets to the point where it's escalated so quickly, if you have to leave equipment behind for your safety, leave it, because equipment can be replaced. Our staff cannot be replaced. So that's that is our, our number one thing is we need people to understand this. They can choose no longer to have our care. Mm-hmm. So when we think about the the program DT for EMS and. You know, I want to talk a little bit about the structure of the program, you know, a little bit about the things that you teach, because, you know, you offer classes all over the United States and people have the opportunity to come to it. Uh, Some of the agencies are getting involved for their uh, people. But if you have the opportunity, one, for continuing education, if you have the opportunity to learn the techniques you need to keep yourself safe, I want to be able to, uh, you know, share that. But if we think about the structure of the program, I mean, what is it? I mean, this is a, is it an eight hour program? Is it a 16 hour program? I mean, what are the the core components or the elements of this course that allow people to have the confidence that they're able to do the skill, right? It's like a skill, like anything else, just because, you know, you teach people how to defend or how to deescalate or how to escape doesn't mean that they're going to do it brilliantly, right? And this is where the practice of this comes in. But just maybe give us a little bit about the course, what you teach, uh, what people will learn, so on. 
So we have two different programs. Our program is actually called EVE, Escaping Violent Encounters. Uh, we have EVE for Fire and EMS, which is a 16-hour course. And then we have the EVE for Healthcare Providers, which is an eight-hour course for in-hospital personnel. Now, obviously, the in-hospital personnel, I don't have to teach them how to approach a scene, where to park their ambulance, um, how to how to you know exfil out of a house or uh, a building. I don't have to teach them those things. So the way the program is set up is um, it is literally lecture, practice, lecture, practice, back and forth. So we teach you during the lecture part tactics to avoid ever having to use techniques. Now you mentioned in the beginning my the full company name, which is Defensive Tactics for escaping, mitigating, and surviving a violent encounter. The number four in there actually has a meaning in there. Throughout this entire program, we teach you that you have to, in every patient encounter, you have to survive in four areas. We call this the mind, the street, the media, and the courts. So when we talk about the mind, that is understanding the difference between a patient and an attacker. Because Chris, in all your years of EMS and, and work in the truck, have you ever had a, we'll use an example, an elderly dementia patient reach up and try to slap you, grab you, push you, pull you? Yeah, I'm, of yeah. course. And that could actually be done the exact same way that someone who is drunk or drug could do. Correct. So we have to make it so you understand the difference between a patient and an attacker. What is their intent? Because if you used a physical skill for the dementia patient that you'd want to use on the drunk or drug person, well, that might get you in a lot of trouble. Sure. Um, no different than what we call staph overreaction when you have the postictal patient who swings at you. Um, again, what do they have intent? Well, that's what we would call an uncooperative patient. So you need to be able to differentiate the two right away so you don't have staph overreaction. Now, when we talk about the street, those are the physical skills that work more often than not. They have to be courtroom defendable. They have to be reasonable in application, whether it's the drunk person who wants to assault you or grandma who, who has dementia, who's trying to, you know, take a bite out of your arm. Um, so that's the street skills. When we talk about the media, the media is broken up into two parts, mainstream media as well as social media. Well, we all know that social media is the most powerful media out there right now. The newest uh, uh, study shows that the biggest majority of people get their news from social media now. Now, every single day, the, the mainstream media reports on what's trending in social media. So why, why do we see you have to look good on me and the media? Not that my hair looks perfect like yours, Chris, but my actions look perfect. Mm -hmm. And the simple fact is, is that because 98% of our day is on camera, whether it's, you know, security cameras, whether it's the ring doorbell, well, right. it's, it's their cameras inside their house. But lastly, as soon as an, an action happens... Everybody does this thing. They pull up their cell phone. They're like, I got to record this. Right. Well, did that cell phone camera catch the whole action or just your reaction? Well, it's just your reaction. Well, what happens if your reaction makes you look like you're the aggressor? How's that going to play out in the media? Right. That'll be the headline news. Um, so we tell you you have to win in the media. So not just your, your physical actions, but your verbal actions which goes a lot back to emotional intelligence and understanding that you're, you shouldn't be cussing and swearing at people. You should be not ordering people, but talking to people. These actions show, for example, there's big news headlines, the two providers in Illinois who got charged. 
Now, the strapping them down face down was obviously wrong, but the most egregious actions were the way they talked to the person. Every single person from uh, that I've talked to who has watched that video was like, oh my God, she was harsh. She was, you know, non, non, non-charismatic whatsoever. That's what people are the most egregious about on that. So you have to win in the media. The last is you have to win in the courts. Now the courts come in two different parts. They have the court of law, which is criminal civil court, and the court of public opinion. Mm-hmm. Now, court of public opinion is what does everybody think? What does your bosses think about your actions? Remember, almost every single person out there nowadays has social media. Right. So what, what are they doing? They're watching videos. And every single person has an opinion. All right. Now, what is the jury made up of? Your peers. And when they watch the videos and it goes to the court, you could, could be condemned before you ever start this whole thing. So you literally have to win in all four of these areas. Just losing in one of these areas can make you lose the entire encounter. Right. For example, if you don't understand the difference between patient attacker and you use something that's unreasonable against grandma who, you know, had dementia, well, you're probably going to end up losing in the court of law. Same thing goes to skill, the street. If you use a physical skill that, for example, choking somebody out, um, the things we've seen, you know, the one in Dallas, uh, Dallas, Texas, where the uh, medic kicks the guy on the ground. He keeps saying, get up, get up, and then kicks him in the head and then punches him when he gets up. That wasn't self-defense at that point. So that's the street. Then the media is obviously, how did you look on on that camera? Did your actions look and sound reasonable? Which all leads back to the courts. You have to win in all four of these areas. Every single encounter. So we do a lot of focus on this throughout the class. So as we teach these tactics, then we go into some techniques. So the techniques follow an order based on the very first thing is, is getting punched in the face. Uh, or getting slapped. A, a, a very wise man, well, I guess we'll call him wise man, very uh, very uh, uh, advantageous man once said, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Mike Tyson, right? Mm-hmm. So One of my favorite Mike Tyson quotes. It's mine too. Uh, and the simple fact is, is that if we could stop that initial first strike to the face, that's, that's, a, good, that's a win of a day. Because that buys you a moment of time to create distance because you didn't get your teeth knocked in. Yeah, but the problem is, is a lot of people aren't thinking about that, right? I mean, they're, 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 whether it's their own bravado, whether it's their own ego, whether it's their own feeling of uh, uh, you know their ability to defend themselves. And I think that that was my uh, challenge is I was very, very comfortable with defending myself as a, you know, I have two black belts, I have a brown belt. And I was very, very comfortable being able to mount a defense if somebody was. But but if you don't have that mentality, people aren't thinking this guy's going to punch me in the face. And I think, <clears throat> pardon me, and I think that one of the things that we have to be able to think about is anybody can punch you in the face at any given time, and you got to be prepared for it at any given time. Absolutely, and that's where we start to change that mindset in our class of the fact that. Again, we have to recognize those relationship changes as they're happening. And there are visual cues that are put out by people. Think everything from, you know, you know, trying to stare through you, the, the clenched jaw, uh, fist opening, closing, um, the way that they're sitting. You know, these are all things that we teach throughout the class so that people start recognizing these changes. 
mm-hmm. to be better prepared. Um, and we cover everything up to including how you should be positioning yourself, where your hands should be, the fact that they should be crossed or in your pockets or interlaced because you can't defend yourself in those positions. Uh, we focus on those. Now, understand that after we complete a 16-hour course, do we expect anybody to be a black belt? Absolutely not. Every single person who takes our course, after they complete it, they get online access to all the physical skills that we taught them so they can continue to watch and practice those for the next two years. In two years, we, we expect you to do a, a recertification course. It's Half the time, it's an eight-hour research course uh, to recertify. But um, because in the end, who's who's responsible for your safety? You are. So if you don't take the time to continue to practice these skills, what will happen is, is when you get ready to get punched in the face, you'll be going, oh, my God, what Jason teach you? Too late. You already got hit in the face. Right. This is, we also like to say that self-defense is kind of like taking a bath. If you don't do it every single day, you're going to stink. You, you literally have to, it's something that has to be the forefront of your thoughts every day. Right. I mean, a skill, it's like a skill like anything else. I mean, the first time you innovated somebody, is that how you innovated someone today? It's because you grew the skill and you had that opportunity. And that's what makes martial arts so prevalent is the fact that you you go over every single situation countless times over and over and over and over again, that it becomes muscle memory and second nature. And that, you know, if someone's going to throw a punch at you and they're coming from this position, you've practiced it hundreds and hundreds of times to know that this is how you're going to dodge and this is how you're going to move and this is how you're going to counter strike. I got to think that in a course as such, uh, just because you teach the material, as you say, doesn't mean you're able to defend yourself, but it's that constant uh, practice that will allow you to build that muscle memory that will allow you to have that reactive uh, reactive time that now when someone is throwing a punch and you see it coming, you actually have the movement memorized to a point where it just happens and you're not even having to think about it. Right. So we teach also how your brain processes information. Uh, we use the acronym RACE. Recognize, analyze, calculate, and execute. Your brain goes through, in Chris, your, your prior military, um, you might remember OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, act. Yeah. It's in the same category of this. The simple fact is, is a million times during the day, throughout the day, your brain is recognizing something is going on. After you, you recognize something, you start analyzing. Is this something I actually have to deal with or, or be dealt with? After I've recognized, analyzed, if my brain determines it's something I need to actually do something about, it goes into calculate. Your brain is basically like a big filing cabinet full of file folders. Think about driving every single day. Not emergency traffic, just your regular vehicle. As you're driving along, you don't really think about as you're approaching a traffic uh, traffic light. You don't start thinking about, oh, I wonder if there's any pedestrians. I wonder how long that light's been red. It's you've turned a the thing like driving from a thought process right. into a thoughtless process. No different than how many times you ever left work, especially work nice. You drive home, you pull in your driveway and went, holy cow, how did I get here? You don't remember it. Well, the reason why you didn't get in an accident is because we're creatures of habit. We drive the same route every single day. We, our subconscious mind was, had taken over for us. So after we, what we needed to do is take our self-defense skills and move them from the back of the filing cabinet to the front of the filing cabinet so that they are readily accessible at all times. 
So that's the last part is the execute part. It, your brain pulls out the, the file folder and it says they're prone to punch me. I did this every single time. Right. So you don't have to actually think about the skill. It's just a reaction. Very cool. And that's one of the things we work on for people to react faster. Sure. I got to tell you, man, I just love the conversation and, you know, the course has been around for a lot of years and I've always wanted to take it. I've always wanted to become an instructor because I do believe that as leaders, we have to be able to ensure that our members of our organization go home at the end of their shift and coming on. And uh, we were actually talking last week while you and I were in Colorado and it was good really to kind of bring this topic back up because I think we forget it. I think we become complacent. We just assume that it's not going to happen to me. And what we have to start assuming in our career field is that it is going to happen to me. And when is it going to happen to me? And how are we going to deal with it? So I appreciate you coming on and sharing more about this course. Uh, Jason Brooks, you're the president and CEO of DT4EMS. Uh, if folks want to learn a little bit more about the program, is there a place they can go and check it out? Yeah, they can go to www.dt4, the number four, ems.com. Um all of our information is there, our contact information. Um, literally, we're used by most all large departments, uh, uh, large and small departments across the country. For example, we just finished training um, all of FDNY's uh, EMS personnel, 4,200 uh, personnel. Uh, City of Detroit Fire and EMS uses us. New Orleans EMS is now uh, using us. Um, so we are out there uh, all over. Yeah, man, apply for a grant so everybody can take it and get it for free. But uh, I want to thank you for coming and joining us. Promise you're going to come back. And uh, certainly, uh, you know, you're a great guest to have on the show. But for everybody out there, I mean, we've got to be able to take our safety in, in, you know, in mind, right? We've got to be able to make that first and foremost. Maybe it's not about ego anymore. Maybe it's not about personality anymore. Maybe we have to be able to start thinking about what could happen and sometimes we may not get home in the morning and that's really scary now in this uh you know this day of ems but we have to be able to think about it uh for chris uh for kelly grayson i'm chris subalara if you have any questions comments or concerns go ahead and email us at the show at ems1.com don't forget to rate us on itunes and we'll chat with everyone again next week <laughs>